Hello, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. As we were contending with the COVID-19 pandemic, the Nova Scotia shooting rampage in April threw our nation into deeper grief over the loss of 22 lives. An absolute tragedy. At the same time, we are also being warned to prepare for an echo pandemic of mental illness following COVID-19. As Canadians speak about public health, are glued to guidance from their public health officers, I'm joined today by Dr. Alan Drummond to discuss gun regulation as a matter of public health. Dr. Drummond is an emergency doctor in Perth, Ontario, and he's a member of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, co-chair of its Public Affairs Committee. Dr. Drummond has followed the issue of gun control for close to three decades. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Drummond. Oh, my pleasure. Now, you don't see gun control as being about gangs and crime control. Rather, you frame it as a public health issue. Why? Well, that's uh, the nature of the problem. Um, we have uh, gun control as an issue, uh, really, in terms of the public awareness and political uh, action, has largely focused on two major things, both of which are essentially criminal in nature. And one is, of course, you know, the rare mass shootings that we have in our country. Uh, and the second, of course, is the rise of uh, gang culture and the use of firearms in, in gang wars in, in urban environments. And uh, the problem is that by framing it uh, as a criminal issue, uh, we get uh, government solutions that tend to focus on crime, crime prevention, and so forth. But the reality, uh, if we are truly uh, trying to impact on the uh, extent of uh, injury and death from firearms in Canada, what we really should be doing is focusing on uh, more public health issues such as suicide and suicide prevention, uh, intimate partner violence, uh, and the use of firearms in, in, in such uh, uh, unintentional injuries in the pediatric age group. And uh, of these, suicide by far and away is the most important. Uh, if we look at firearm deaths in this country, and it's been fairly static over the last uh, 30 years, uh, the great majority of firearm deaths are actually due to suicide. 75% of all firearm deaths in Canada are due to suicide. And so by focusing on urban gangs and mass shootings, important as they are, we are actually missing uh, an opportunity uh, to have an impact on the greatest source uh, of firearm mortality. And so we need to, uh, I think if we need to, going forward, we need to get rid of the term gun control. I think uh, it, it just sort of, uh, it, it confuses the issue largely. What we need to do is start talking about the prevention of firearm injury and death. Um, if we, I mean, there are a number, uh, as I've mentioned previously, there are a number of things that we have to deal with. Suicide, homicide, intimate partner violence, pediatric accidents, uh, mass shootings, and all of these things are different, uh, and they require uh, a different approach uh, for for each uh, type of uh, fatality you're trying to uh, lessen. And the term gun control just means to a lot of people confiscation of guns or banning of guns, 
but doesn't really get down to the uh, root causes and uh, the unique solutions for each type of problem. So uh, we need to look at this as not as just a criminal issue, but as one of the, the public health, realizing that around seven or 800 Canadians die uh, as a result of uh, firearm injury uh, every year. And it's really hard to quantitate how many are injured. But we do know that for everybody who dies by a gun, uh, there are a lot of people uh, left uh, in that wake uh, who are going to suffer. And so it's a much bigger problem than just urban gangs in downtown Toronto or downtown Edmonton. And you know, guns are unique versus other kinds of weapons. So how do guns become a focus of public health, whereas other types of weapons don't? In terms of the lethality of the, of the firearm, we know that if you, uh, for instance, in the context of suicide, uh, if you try to uh, commit suicide by taking you know, medications and overdose, your chances of dying are probably less than 5%, perhaps. Uh, if you even uh, attempt uh, to die uh, or commit suicide by hanging, which is the most common uh, form uh, of, of successful suicide attempts, uh, you have about an 85% chance of dying, but I can promise you that if you put a gun to your head and pull the trigger, the lethality is so much higher and probably is close to 95, 98%. So there's, they're particularly lethal in terms of a suicidal method. Uh, and also, I'm not, uh, and I'm not a criminologist, and I, I don't want to portray myself that way, but, but even if you look at... Uh, Random shoot, not random shootings, but shootings in the urban environments as part of, uh, you know, gang violence. Um, uh, a bullet, uh, you know, knows no boundaries. Uh, it can it can penetrate a house, a door, a window. It can it it, it can injure lots of children in a playground uh, or sleeping quietly in their beds, you know, as opposed to a knife attack. So it's particularly lethal, and. Um, you know, it's the other thing about it is that you know, as a Canadian culture, uh, we have lots of guns in our in our in our country. Uh, there's about two million legal gun owners in Canada. There are about ten million firearms, uh, of which about a million, a million and a half are handguns. Uh, in rural Canada, uh, practically every uh, home owns a firearm including me. I live in rural Turf, Ontario, and I have a shotgun on the 22. It's just part of the, the culture, largely, for either farming or uh, hunting or, uh, you know, uh, animal control like for pests. So uh, we have a lot of guns. And uh, the trouble is that uh, uh, people talk about legal gun owners, but and uh, the thing is that if even a legal gun owner... Uh, can uh, cross the line, pull the trigger, um, and uh, suddenly be find himself not too much of a legal gun owner. So they're lethal and they're prevalent. Uh, and uh, the prevalence increases uh, uh, as the more rural you become. Um, and so uh, people tend to think of this as an urban crime problem, but actually if you look at it from the context of suicide at least, it's actually a rural long gun problem. So it, the, the debate can't just be about assault weapons. It just can't be about handguns. It also has to be about the family shotgun, the family 22, the family 303. Yeah, I think listeners might be shocked about the numbers related to 
firearm ownership in Canada. And let me disclose, while I personally don't own a gun, I certainly grew up with guns in the home. My father grew up on a farm, and while I grew up in an urban environment in Windsor, Ontario, my dad was a target shooter. We had a range set up in our basement for practice. So I don't know if you can share some of the stats with us, but I was just reading that Canada is ranked fifth in OECD countries for gun deaths per capita. That really surprised me. Right. And, uh, well, it, it, it shouldn't, uh, you know, in terms of, and again, suicide uh, claims the lion's share uh, of those deaths. And you're right. Uh, Ian Overton, who's a well uh, thought of researcher on gun violence, has pointed out that Canada indeed ranks fifth in the OECD. Uh, and within uh, the Americas, uh, I think Canada is fourth. Uh, so uh, it, it, it really is a, a fairly significant issue. And, you know, we know that, uh, that guns in the home uh, are, are clearly associated uh, with uh, higher risk of uh, uh, firearm homicide, firearm uh, suicide, uh, and uh, pediatric uh, accidents. Um, and uh, we talk about safe storage and so forth, and, and everybody says, well, we have laws. Yeah, we have laws, but uh, how often are those laws actually enforced? Uh, you know, I've owned firearms since I moved to Perth in 1983. Nobody's ever come to my door to see if I actually follow, you know, the law which returns to firearms uh, safe storage. We know that guns are stolen uh, every now and again from uh, people's homes, which means that they were available and accessible. So again, you know, is how how value is how valuable is it to know that we have a safe storage rule or law if it's actually never uh, collaborated or enforced? So uh, yeah, we have a problem, but it, it's uh, again, it's not just urban gangs. It, it really does come down to rural suicide. Uh, with the, the ever-common uh, rural long gun. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where we so commonly look south to the border in all matters of healthcare and feel pretty smug about how we're doing, how we're performing. But that sometimes masks the very real challenges that we have and how we stack up against other countries. I was going to say that America, I think, is probably, you know, there we are, we share the common border. Uh, we have different cultures. Um, and uh, it, it's a really, you know, bad example. Uh, I mean, I guess the example of America for us is, you know, how things can can go wrong, and uh, uh, and uh, I, I I guess that the uh, the you know the issue is that they really have way more firearms. They have a, a totally different mindset with respect to uh, their Second Amendment rights. You know, in Canada, gun ownership is a privilege, not a right, and uh, and so it's yeah. We get a lot of uh, we get a lot of our our, our impressions from the uh, the the American discussion. I mean, there are some good things that come out of America as well, but yeah, we are really kind of skewed. And when we kind of compare ourselves to other countries uh, other than America, then we actually look kind of permissive uh, in our approach to guns, which you know needs to probably be reviewed. And so what would a public health effort look like? When it's a pandemic, we talk about social distancing, contact tracing, and vaccinations. 
what's involved in a gun control public health response? So a public health approach to the uh, prevention of gun violence, um, I, I, all of these things actually follow a pretty uh, standardized uh, approach. Gun violence is probably no different than, than influenza in terms of the way you know, scientists approach it. And, you know, first of all, with gun violence, uh, you know, it needs to be, it has probably four or five key components. We have to, uh, the approach has to be population-based uh, and doesn't sort of really involve an identifiable individual. It must focus on prevention, usually as far, you know, upstream as is possible. Uh, and it is far, often more effective to change the agent in the environment uh, in which the problem occurs than it is try to than it is to focus on trying to change uh, the individual. Uh, we also need to, from a public health perspective, uh, borrow from human factors engineering and, and using a systems approach and trying to create a system in which it's difficult rather than easy to uh, make mistakes or behave inappropriately, uh, and in which mistakes and inappropriate behavior do not lead to serious injury. Fourth, the approach must be broad and inclusive uh, and trying to change uh, social norms as opposed to just you know passing laws. And we need to engage as many people as possible uh, in the preventive efforts so that we have, you know, we're emphasizing shared responsibility as opposed to individual blame. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the key thing uh, from a public health approach is to get a good data system uh, and adequate funding for analysis uh, of the data collected. And that is one of the uh, key problems identified in Canada. We, we don't have uh, a good data system with respect to, uh, or at least we don't have good analysis uh, of, of the deaths that occur in Canada. We, 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 have a, we don't really have, that I know of, uh, an adequate research base that looks into firearm-related injury from a uniquely Canadian perspective. I don't know of anybody who's actually doing the, that research. We tend to rely on Stats Canada, and there's sort of every five-year sort of report, uh, which is basically statisticians, you know, giving us the facts, but not providing us a lot of analysis. And so one of the things we've been asking for uh, since our original involvement in the the discussions around Bill C-68 in 1995 was let's develop a Canadian research base on firearm injury so that we have a better understanding uh, of the Canadian context and uh, less uh, reliance uh, on you know, research developed uh, in the Americas. So that's, uh, that's pretty uh, key. Um, Otherwise, we're often just dealing with uh, anecdote in media stories, and uh, and again, uh, the sometimes um, less than adequate uh, analysis of StatsCan. If they look at you know crashes, I guess one of the best public health measures is what we do with uh, public health problems related to motor vehicles, and you have you know injuries to pedestrians, you have rollovers, head-on crashes. Uh, and these required sort of diverse policies. They're, they're all car crashes, but they're all kind of, there's a diversity there that requires a, an individual response to the individual problem. And which is why in Canada, uh, you know, gun control or efforts to reduce gun violence 
needs to get beyond just urban gangs, but focus on suicide, homicide, intimate partner violence, pediatric accidents, mass shootings. They're all, they all include the use of the gun, uh, but they're all different in their context and require, you know, different uh, mitigating strategies or different preventative strategies uh, uh, in order to effect change. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember there was this panel focused on how do we decrease healthcare costs, which can be somewhat of a belabored discussion. And then finally, someone just said, you know, in terms of legislative interventions, the two best means we've ever had of actually saving healthcare costs were mandatory seatbelt laws and marketing restrictions on tobacco. And it strikes me that the legislative intervention here could produce some very exciting results of both potentially converting intimate partner deaths into intimate partner injuries, which is still a tragedy, but we can heal people, but we can't revive them. And similarly, related to suicide, there may be attempts, but they wouldn't necessarily result in fatalities. Legislation and and laws can only take you so far. you know, enforcement is part of the of the uh, issue to be sure, but also engineering, uh, making guns sort of less able to be sort of acquired or fired inappropriately, and and uh, so you know, using human engineering. And I mean, when we look at an injury prevention strategy, there's something called the uh, Haddon matrix. It's sort of an old concept, but works well, and uh, it it looks at. Uh, you know what? Who is the the agent? Uh, what's the environment? Uh, what's the host mechanism? And it allows you to develop strategies uh, to impact on you know the person who pulls the trigger, the environment which has facilitated uh, such behavior, such as racism, socioeconomic deprivation, uh, isolation, and so forth. And also uh, look at the weapon itself as a vector. So for all of these common, not common, but all of these problems that affect gun violence in Canada, uh, you know, the common vector is the gun. Uh, and yet there's so much more than the gun uh, to deal with. And, you know, there's no quick fix for uh, socioeconomic disparity in Canada. There's no quick fix for racism. Um, so uh, these things are important, but they are a longer-term proposition. In the meantime, uh, you know, we do have the individual with the gun, um, and we need to sort of look at strategies uh, to try and prevent uh, inappropriate uh, uh, behaviors, um, which has called into question the whole uh, issue of the so-called red flag laws uh, that have been developed in the states, these extreme um, risk protection orders. Um, and, uh, Minister Blair, uh, the Minister of Public Safety, uh, mused, uh, rather publicly last fall about, uh, introducing a red flag law by which, uh, if an individual was, uh, deemed to be, um, at risk of, uh, inappropriate behavior, uh, with a firearm that they could be, uh, reported to a justice of the peace and the firearms could be removed. That's a bit uh, redundant 
because uh, there already is, you know, the various provincial chief firearms officers where any citizen could call a 1-800 number uh, and report a concern uh, and uh, the police would visit and if deemed appropriate, firearms could be removed. Now, we as an emergency physicians association, actually for the last 30 years, have actually been calling for a more direct form of a red flag law. Whereas uh, if somebody was to present uh, in the emergency department at three o'clock on a Sunday morning with uh, clear, well, at least suicidal thoughts um, uh, or psychotic delusions that we would be able to directly call our local police department or constabulary and say, well, look, uh, this person doesn't qualify because of the vagueness of their complaint. They don't qualify for a, a mandatory psychiatric evaluation, whether sort of sent to a psychiatric hospital to directly be reviewed by a psychiatrist and, and kept for a number of days to evaluate them. Uh, you're, 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 it's perfectly legal in Canada to be psychotic. Uh, and the only way we can actually report some uh, report an individual uh, to the police is if there's a direct threat. Uh, I'm going to kill Dr. Drummond. Well, okay, then Dr. Drummond gets to be notified that there's an imminent threat. But uh, vague ideation is not. So for the last 30 years, easily, we have been saying, look, we send a lot of people who are psychotic home. We send a lot of people who are depressed, who have vague suicidal ideation home. Uh, is it not worthy of consideration that we directly notify the police on discharge to say, I'm sending so-and-so home, you know, they may not be seeing a mental health worker for three days, five days a week. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure what, what the level of suicidality is, but they don't qualify for mandatory evaluation. Could we not at least remove the firearms from their home? Uh, until such time as uh, psychological or psychiatric evaluation has been treated and, or initiated and a treatment program initiated until their mental health crisis uh, stabilizes. I realize and acknowledge that that would uh, probably get a lot of people with uh, their civil liberties uh, uh, riled up or concerned, but you know, I think it's one of those things that, you know, for the greater good, you know, might well uh, be uh, worthy of uh, consideration. Uh, they have been shown to be, uh, we talked about uh, America before and how lots of bad things come from America, but some good things do. And uh, one of the good things that has come up has been the institution of these red flag laws uh, across states, principally from a point of view of mass shootings. And I believe is now in, 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 in place in about 17 states with more to come. And preliminary data seems to suggest that they are actually uh, helpful. But there again, uh, you're talking about uh, reporting to the justice of the peace, uh, which is a little uh, laborious when you're in a clinical scenario of being in the emergency department in the middle of the night. So uh, I'll leave it to the ethicists, the politicians, to see if that's uh, worthy. Um, there is a pro-gun lobby in Canada, just to be uh, straight, and they've been quite, it doesn't really matter what you offer up, they find, you know, some way to take offense from it. And uh, uh, this particular one, uh, or suggestion, they sort of, they uh, loudly uh, uh, called, uh, remind us that you know, we have a 1-800 number, 
and we have chief firearms officers, uh, which uh, is true, but again, doesn't meet the, uh, the, the requirement for uh, clinical efficiency when you're evaluating somebody in the emergency department. And it also, uh, they conveniently uh, managed to forget that, yes, we have chief firearms officers, but they've allowed, you know, mass killings in, in Nova Scotia. They've allowed RCMP officers to commit suicide in British Columbia. They are not, uh, they are not infallible. Uh, they have their own issues in terms of their ability to respond um, to complaints about gun owners, some in terms of months. So uh, that's often brought up that, that our suggestion is redundant. I actually don't think it is. And I actually think it would uh, fill a, a very important gap uh, in our ability to prevent uh, gun injury uh, from inappropriate use by people at risk. Now, listeners may be thinking, Jody, this is supposed to be a special series podcast on COVID-19. Why are you talking about the firearm injury and death prevention? But there was this very powerful op-ed in the Annals of Internal Medicine looking at gun sales in the United States. An 85% increase year over year in the month of March in terms of the purchase of firearms. And these are the highest firearm sales ever recorded in the United States. And our Canadian firearm sales have also gone up during this period. And I thought the authors of the op-ed wrote something very powerful. They said, in the best of times, increased gun ownership is associated with a heightened risk for firearm-related suicide. These are not the best of times. These are not the best of times here in Canada either. So is there added urgency here on top of an already urgent situation in your view? Well, uh, some have argued yes, and uh, uh, the uh, increased purchase of firearms and ammunition uh, during a time of COVID uh, has certainly gone up in America, but it has uh, equally certainly gone up in Canada, uh, probably uh, for less nefarious uh, reasons. You know, the Americans are, have a different culture and a different mindset, and uh, they are strong believers in uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, they uh, unfortunately uh, have bought into the mythology of the gun for self-defense, which has largely been, well, it has been disproven, that a gun in the home uh, is more likely to mean that you or your partner or your children are going to die as a result of uh, a gun-inflicted injury than, you know, any amount of, you know, self-defense measures in, in, in America. Uh, and uh, I don't think a lot of Canadians uh, truly believe that a gun's required for self-defense. Uh, if they do, I kind of wonder what Canada have they been living in. Um, and and I, I mean, I've lived in all kinds of settings, Montreal, Ottawa, Vancouver, uh, rural Ontario. I was in the Army, um, and I've never uh, felt that a gun was required for self-defense in this country uh, ever. So... I don't think most people feel that way. I don't think most people are sort of, you know, batting down the hatches and survivalists and, you know, getting the, uh, collecting their firearms for the zombie apocalypse. I don't think that's the issue. I think probably more likely in Canada, at least, it's probably more a reflection of the supply chain. Uh, and uh, a shortage of guns in America, and ammunition in America might lead to, 
you know, a, a, a shortage of firearms and, and ammunition for hunting season in Canada down the line, perhaps. Um, that that being said, however, I think it's I think it is fair to say uh, that there is a, a disturbing element uh, of alt right thinking within some of the more vocal members of the Canadian firearms community. I think it's a very small percentage. Most gun owners uh, are responsible, uh, law-abiding uh, people. You use it for sport shooting or use it for hunting. Uh, but there is that, that element, to be sure. The reason that it might be of concern uh, is that, uh, I think you're absolutely right, uh, many uh, organizations uh, have called out uh, the concern that uh, COVID, uh, by its enforced uh, isolation, it was supposed to be social distancing, but for many people, it's actually become uh, isolation. Uh, concerns of economic hardship and uh, job loss. Um, people are concerned that we might see in the coming months and years, uh, I hope it's not years, but uh, an increase in suicidality and suicide attempt. Um, I don't, I'm not sure there's any firm evidence to show that that's the case yet. Certainly in my own experience over the last couple of months, I haven't seen any increase in rural suicides in the community that I live, but early days yet and so the concern is uh if if you know if you're if you've lost your job uh you're socially isolated uh mental health supports aren't as robust uh as they uh, have been in the past they were never great in the first place but they're certainly less so now are we going to see an increased risk of suicide uh, and are we going to see, uh, by virtue of the increased purchase of firearms, an increased risk and a higher uh, lethal means uh, of committing suicide? And that is the concern. I think it's, uh, again, it's proven. There were early days yet, but I think a lot of mental health professionals are concerned about it. And uh, so there is probably some urgency, I think, uh, within a Canadian context to uh, link the mental health uh, problems associated with uh, pandemics and uh, social isolation uh, with that increased risk. We also, uh, not only suicide alone, but uh, there are also many experts in the field of intimate partner violence uh, who are suggesting that uh, we are seeing uh, both uh, an increased risk uh, of intimate partner violence as people are confined to the home, the perpetrator as well as the victim. Uh, we know that uh, intimate partner violence uh, doesn't, you know, in terms of Canadian context, there may be, I don't know, 75, 85 deaths uh, per year. I think it's the, the commonly quoted statistic is one. Uh, every six days in Canada, a woman is murdered by her current or former partner. And uh, there have been uh, decreased uh, visits to the emergency department uh, for intimate partner violence that have alarmed others. And so we're not just talking about intimate partner homicide, but we're also worried about the, the use of the firearm as a, as a means of intimidation. And that's been well documented in the past. Uh, you know, you don't have to threaten to kill somebody. You just have to clean the gun as you, you know, as you uh, inflict such violence on your partner to intimidate them into, uh, into being uh, compliant. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think it is a concern. I think mental health as a global issue in Canada is, is a concern right now. Um, again, 
in terms of gun purchasing, uh, it it may be more practical than than anything nefarious. But but you know, people who do involve themselves with mental health planning and with intimate partner violence are clearly concerned that there may be. Uh, a, a potential linkage. So yeah, I think it is important to consider it in, in this particular time. And then, of course, we've got the the other issue of the of the Nova Scotia uh, tragedy that that I think is really going to force the government to uh, to uh, enact some of the changes that they've been talking about for the last couple of years. Now, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one of the heartening aspects of this pandemic situation has been the way countries are learning from other countries about how to effectively respond to the pandemic. So what country can Canada learn from as it relates to firearm injury and death prevention? Well, that's that's a, a, an equally great question. Thanks. Uh, and I think, I think there is lots to learn. Um, you know, I've been at this uh, since the days of... Uh, Prime Minister Chrétien and Bill C-68. Uh, I, I, you know, I have to confess, I, I, I didn't want to be. Uh, you know, this is not uh, why I wake up in the morning. Uh, I, you know, I'm an emergency physician. Uh, our association back in the 1990s, uh, uh, when we were in our infancy, uh, incorporated the view that uh, if we were going to develop as a specialty, we had to uh, develop a research base. We had to develop... Uh, uh, better uh, public advocacy for injury prevention. So it was actually part of the injury prevention sphere that that we became involved uh, in the gun control debate of the early 1990s, and largely because some of our urban colleagues were saying, you know, uh, I know we're not America, uh, but um, we're starting to see uh, shootings. Before the early 1990s, we would have to send our trainees to Chicago and uh, Baltimore and New York to gain experience with penetrating injury from guns, because we never saw them in Canada. They're very, very rare. Uh, but now that's changed. Nobody has to go anywhere. They can work in downtown Ottawa, downtown Montreal, downtown Toronto, uh, and see more than their share of uh, shootings. And the other thing that's changed societally is, uh, you know, we now have active shooter protocols in Canadian hospitals, code silvers, where we prepare for an active shooter in emergency departments. I mean, who would have thunk it uh, in our country that that, that's where we became. But yeah, we've learned, uh, and we've learned from the tragedies of others. And I think uh, you know, there's several examples that come to mind. I, I do want to sort of say that, uh, although I, I tend to have a very uh, jaundiced view of America and American politics, I, I do think of the red flag laws uh, that have been enacted over the numerous uh, mass shootings in America sort of do uh raise some potential positives uh, for, for us if we, if we are enabled to um, develop a meaningful red flag law in the country. I personally think that more than bans and buybacks and so forth, that a red flag law should be, uh, and, and reducing the risk of uh, suicide and partner violence would be something that both sides of the divide uh, could agree would be a good thing. And individuals at risk uh just remove the firearm until he's no longer the risk that he currently poses. I, I can't see any major uh, ethical argument with that, to be honest. Uh, the British, uh, after the Dunblane uh, uh, massacre of uh, school children in Scotland in 1996, um, 
they got very aggressive uh, with uh, societal's uh, view of guns. Uh, certain guns were banned. Uh, the guns that weren't banned were forced to be kept in uh, in armories or in secure um, gun clubs, uh, which I think is uh, another thing worthy of consideration in Canada. Which is, I, I get that you want to have you want to be a target shooter. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I fully buy into this combat shooting exercise, but but I get that people might want to be a target shooter. Then why don't you just keep your guns in a secure facility at your local gun club instead of you know having them at home uh, and uh, so i think that's important and they also were very big about safe storage and i think canada has some pretty stringent gun laws but i you know and i know that we have safe storage laws but they're they're only as good as how they are enforced and they aren't so the other thing that happened i guess uh, again equal tragedy was uh, in australia and uh, the shooting in uh, Port Arthur in Tasmania, uh, and the Australians uh, got very aggressive with the development of their national firearms agreement, and which sharply restricted uh, legal ownership of, uh, of of firearms, such as the banning of automatics and semi-automatic rifles. It was a massive buyback of around uh, close to seven hundred thousand firearms, and since that time. Uh, there have been uh, very, very uh, few uh, mass shootings. So uh, in 18 years before the Port Arthur uh, uh, incident, uh, there were there were 13 mass shootings. And in the 22 years since that time, the country's only suffered uh, two such uh, incidents. And they also found in Australia that uh, after the National Firearms Agreement came into force, the... Uh, there was a decline in both uh, firearm uh, suicide and homicide rates uh, after the NFA. So, uh, you know, again, something encouraging. Um, there have been, uh, obviously, the New Zealand uh, experience of uh, just last year where, I mean, it's a little early to tell, but again, a massive gun guy uh, buyback. And we'll have to wait and see what societal benefits that are. But there's also other things to learn. Uh, in in um, in both uh, Switzerland and uh, Israel, um, they have civilian, essentially militias, uh, and uh, they found that by uh, restricting in Israel, what they did was that when soldiers went home for the weekend, they had to leave their guns on base, uh, and that led actually to a reduction in firearm suicide amongst military members. And in Switzerland, similarly. Um, you know, they found that uh, after they uh, did their military reforms, uh, there was a reduction in both overall suicide rate and firearm suicide rate after the uh, army reforms of 2003-2004. So, uh, you know, in comparison to other countries, Canada looks pretty permissive and uh, uh, pretty flexible. The other thing I want to mention that just comes to mind right now is there was a mass shooting in Germany, I think... Uh, uh, last year, last fall, uh, and uh, I didn't know, uh, but um, you know, Germany has pretty tight uh, firearm regulations. One of those firearm regulations is that before you get a license, there's a mandatory, formal psychiatric evaluation or psychological evaluation before you're allowed to own a firearms license. So when you look at what's happened in England, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, 
uh, and the two military reforms in Israel and Switzerland, we look pretty weak, actually. We look pretty permissive. So, you know, I think uh, there are things to learn. Uh, we can do better. Uh, our association really, uh, we don't have all the answers. We're not, we're not criminologists. Uh, we're not sociologists. We, we can't solve the world's ills. Uh, but, you know, we do see shootings in our, in our emergency departments. And, they, and as a coroner, I can tell you, I, I see more than my share uh, in terms of reflection of failed firearms policy. And so I guess in, in summary, what we would be calling for would be one, uh, a, a much more uh, robust, stronger research base for firearms uh, injury in Canada so that we could rely on our own uh, scientific analysis and not that of America. Not that there's anything bad with learning from other countries, but it would answer some of the critics that's, that say, well, you rely too much on the American evidence. But the American evidence is pretty strong that, that states with tighter gun restrictions have less uh, firearm suicides and suicides overall. So there is something to learn there. We would also call... And we have consistently since 1994, 1995, for a mandatory reporting of individuals at risk uh, of, uh, of, of uh, firearm injury. Uh, we supported the registry. I know that's uh, politically uh, probably a non-starter these days, but we always thought that that made sense to us to know which guns were in which home and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, again, uh, we're calling for... Uh, you know, a public health approach uh, to the problem. Let's get away from the, the strict conversation about uh, urban gangs and focus on the other issues that that take far more lives and damage far more many communities um, than uh, urban gang warfare in, in Canadian cities. Dr. Alan Drummond, thank you so much for your leadership. Let us hope that Canadians demonstrated the enormous capacity for change for public health purposes, extends to firearm injury and death prevention. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Be well.